0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Two key measures that change gun laws in Colorado are headed to the governor's desk, and others may soon follow. We'll update you on what's happening and why the fight over gun rights is actually just beginning plus teenagers weigh in on what lawmakers are doing. What are you guys gonna change here today? We're so tired of just waiting for like another school shooting to happen. Then for the first time in 15 years, the American Academy of Pediatrics has issued guidelines on how to best treat children considered overweight or obese. It's sparking a debate that has doctors and families divided. The guidelines don't address body diversity or the fact that bodies come in all sizes. And the story of a baseball pitcher whose fastball might go from fiction to fact.
1: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
0: News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. An update now on what's turning out to be one of the biggest issues at the state capitol this year gun law. Our public affairs reporter, Benta Birkeland, has been following all the bills, the opposition, and the public response, and she's with me now. Hi, Benta. Hi, Chandra. Benta, let's start with what's been proposed and where it stands in the process. I'll bring up the bill and you tell me where it is, okay? Sure. First
2: up, what's happening with the bill to raise the age to buy any and all guns to age 21? So that bill has actually passed the legislature. It did change a bit during the legislative process. So in its final form, it does allow people younger than 21 to possess firearms. They're just not allowed to buy them.
0: What about expanding extreme risk protection orders, or ERPOs, to allow people like teachers, therapists, and doctors to file an order to get
2: someone's guns taken away if they're considered a risk to themselves or others? Yes, that has also passed the legislature. They're both awaiting the governor's signature. And I'll mention it also changed in the process. So in this case, lawmakers added money for a hotline. And that would give people basic information about filing these so-called red flag orders. Mm. And that actually was based on CPR reporting that found that many people concerned about their loved ones, their family members, really don't understand how to seek one of these court orders. What about the bill to create a three-day waiting period for gun purchases? So that is still pending, but it is expected to pass relatively soon. And then there's another bill close to passing that would make it easier to sue the firearms industry. So those four bills together are kind of the core of the gun package Democrats introduced earlier this session.
0: We've also been hearing a lot about a bill to ban guns that don't have serial numbers, also known as ghost guns.
2: Where does that stand? That hasn't been introduced yet, but the governor mentioned this during his State of the State address and said it was a top priority for him. And the term ghost guns, that covers firearms that are crafted at home using a 3D printer or constructed from a a do-it-yourself mail order kit. And so this bill would make it illegal to construct or own one of these firearms that does not have a manufacturer's serial number on it. It would allow a certain period, a time period for people who already have these types of guns to get into compliance. Now, there's also a bill out there to ban so-called assault weapons. What's happening with that? that was introduced a while ago but that bill still hasn't been scheduled for a committee hearing and so the committee hearing is the first step in the legislative process and it's the first chance for the public to formally weigh in but this measure has divided democrats and gun violence prevention advocates they don't all agree it would be effective to pass at the state level and it ha- or that it really has the power to you know be effective and also it's going to Uh, outrage gun rights supporters even more than these other measures so that bill hasn't started moving through the process and if it doesn't happen soon time could run out for it and just the other day I saw a Democratic lawmaker Javier Mabry of Denver and he was in the hallway of the Capitol he was talking to student advocates about Mm. the assault weapons ban and he was basically urging these students to put pressure on other Democrats to get this bill going
3: before the legislative session is up, we can still pass an assault weapons ban. There's still a live bill for an assault weapons ban, I urge, and I'm supportive of it. I'm a co-sponsor of it. I urge you to any other lawmaker you talk to here, if you guys get in to talk to, with anybody in the governor's office, talk about that too.
0: So when it comes to the assault weapons ban, even Democrats are divided. But in general, when it comes to the other bills, what has the opposition been like so far?
2: Well, conservatives at the state house say all of these bills are unconstitutional and will harm Coloradans, and they say it'll fail to fix the problems they're meant to address. Um, I talked to the House Minority Leader Mike Lynch, and he said the firearm is a tool, but restricting it doesn't deal with what he views as the root cause, such as societal issues like mental health challenges. The tragedies are no, no less to Republicans or gun owners than, than anyone else. I would say there's a good argument that, that gun tragedies are, are more felt by people that are passionate about their firearms, because they know that now somebody else didn't uh, treat them properly and use them properly, and now, now they're being threatened for them having firearms. Republican lawmakers have spent a lot of time objecting to these bills and trying to delay the measures. They did win a couple of smaller changes, but Democrats have huge majorities. So there really isn't anything Republicans do can do to stop these bills.
0: Does this mean gun rights supporters are just going to accept that Colorado is headed toward
2: uh, stricter gun laws? I think they've accepted that a lot of these bills will pass the legislature this year, but they are pledging to fight the measures in court. And I've talked to Republicans who said that they think, you know, one reason we didn't see huge, huge crowds at the Capitol to protest these bills so far is because there's some apathy and resignation and acknowledgement that these measures are likely headed to court. And the Colorado gun rights group, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, is one group that's promised to sue. It's already soliciting 18 to 20-year-old plaintiffs to challenge the 21 to purchase law. And the group says they have these lawsuits drafted for every one of these measures once the governor signs them into law. Any idea if they'd win? It's not clear. A lot of these laws follow policies other states already have. So nine states have waiting periods for gun purchases. Several states require people to be at least 21 to buy a firearm. So these laws are already in effect in some other states. But we don't know if the new conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court is going to let laws like this stand in the long term. There was a ruling last year where the court significantly changed the standard for gun laws. So states now have to prove their laws are in keeping with how firearms have been regulated historically. So judges still don't seem to know how to interpret that yet. So the U.S. Supreme Court is likely to weigh in again soon.
0: What's happening on the other side of this issue Have supporters of stricter gun laws been vocal at the state capitol this year?
2: Yes, and primarily from student groups demanding stronger gun laws. Just yesterday, scores of students came to the capitol to talk to lawmakers. There was even a large group that stood outside the governor's office until eventually Governor Polis came out of his office and answered questions and talked to the students for a bit. And these protests were really galvanized by two recent shootings that happened at Denver's East High School.
0: Yes, as we've sadly talked about a lot on the show this year has been has seen both the killing of a 17 year old student and the shooting of two school administrators in
2: separate incidents here in Colorado. And the teens I talked to yesterday at the Capitol, they weren't all from East, but those shootings have really shaken them up. Jay Calloway is a sophomore at Denver's North High School, and she said she has friends and two cousins who attend East. She's 15 years old and says school is scary, especially all the lockdown drills.
0: Well, I just wanted to put it out there, like, am I next? Is my cousin next? Like, who's next? And like, what's gonna happen? Why? What are you guys gonna change here today? we're so tired of just waiting for like another school shooting to happen. When you were
2: talking to these students, what do they think of what the legislature is doing? Most of them they said they want action. But they said they weren't necessarily aware of all of the details of what the legislature is doing. Several students said they support those policies, but they don't really feel optimistic that it would make a meaningful difference in their day-to-day lives. Uh, Sophia Macias is a 16-year-old student. She's a sophomore at Denver School of the Arts. She said she knows students at East High School and said the shootings there were a real wake-up call. And she just feels that students really want their voices to be heard.
4: I mean, obviously, I feel the pain, just like everybody else does, but I'm just trying to see immediate action. So, like, I think a lot of the students aren't as focused on the actual policies that are being changed right now or trying to be. And I think a lot of people should actually be more, a little more educated about the things that are happening specifically with that. And I think that would be something, like, that could be covered by the schools. You know, it would be a good opportunity to start, like, educating on those, like, the actual laws that are being built right now.
2: And certainly for those who do want to know more, we'll be doing a lot more coverage on any of these gun policies that ultimately do pass. Thank you, Benta. Thanks, Chandra. That's CPR public affairs reporter
0: Benta Birkeland talking about all of the gun bills being considered by the state legislature this year. When we come back, the debate over new medical guidelines that are supposed to help children struggling with their weight. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: I'm Andy Kenney from the CPR Newsroom. The state legislature is in session, and that means so is the CPR Politics Podcast, Purplish. Everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org.
0: How should children who've been diagnosed as overweight or obese be treated medically? Well, depends on who you ask. Earlier this year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines on treatments which include weight loss medication and surgery, but doctors, patients, and their families are divided on what's considered the best approach. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been talking to them and joins us now.
6: Hi, Andrea. Hi, Chandra. First, tell us about the new guidelines. This was the first time in 15 years the American Academy of Pediatrics put out recommendations on childhood obesity. Parts of it aren't controversial, like Doctors need to think about not just the child, but the whole family. Things like a family's access to nutritional food, physical activity, medical support. And there's some consensus on certain treatments. The guidelines recommend counseling for children in a collaborative, not confrontational or directive way, and intensive behavior and lifestyle treatment. The best being 26 or more hours of face to face, family based treatment over a several-month period.
0: So what don't experts agree on?
6: The most controversial part is that the guidelines favor doctors taking some really aggressive actions early. They include weight loss medication for children 12 and older and for teens 13 and older with severe obesity. They recommend evaluating kids for metabolic and bariatric surgery. The previous recommend took a more wait-and-see approach, waiting to see if a child could shed pounds as they got older.
0: Many doctors, including one you spoke with, agree with this more proactive approach. What did you hear?
6: The doctor I spoke with is a pediatric endocrinologist and medical director for lifestyle medicine at Children's Hospital Colorado, Megan Kelsey. She says all the recent literature supports this kind of proactive approach.
4: Obesity is very likely to persist into adulthood. Very few patients, very few kids, using the approach that we had before, the staged approach to uh, weight management, had resolution of their obesity. In fact, most had ongoing weight gain.
6: Dr. Kelsey points to all of the serious medical problems that come with obesity, like diabetes. Kelsey was actually part of a national trial, the largest treatment trial for type two diabetes in children. And they found that diabetes is more aggressive in kids. And
4: when you're thinking that these are kids who are diagnosed when they're 15, they're having heart issues, eye issues, kidney issues before they're 30. And so it's really important to treat and prevent these diseases early and not just wait until they get into adulthood and then have further health problems down the line.
6: So if you can head off obesity, Dr. Kelsey's saying Mm -hmm. you can head off all sorts of problems. She says research also points to the really horrible psychological effects of obesity in kids, something she sees a lot in the kids she treats.
4: Patients who have really elevated body mass index are more likely not only to have complications of that, but to experience weight stigma, bullying, teasing, and then that um, causes mental health challenges and can further contribute to weight gain. Um, And that the higher the body mass index gets, the less likely they'll ever get to a healthy body mass index using, say, bariatric surgery or medications.
0: Pretty compelling arguments for taking action early. What's the counter argument?
6: Well, first, just to address this idea of stigma, there's a movement around appreciating all body types, including larger bodies, even using the term fat in a non-pejorative way. Mm-hmm. doctor Anna Anne-Marie Amelia also points to research that finds you can't determine someone's health just by looking at them. Amelia told me she had a visceral reaction when she read the guidelines. She even got an upset some stomach. She's chief medical officer and chief clinical officer officer at the Denver based uh, eating recovery center. It's this treatment program that serves kids from all over the country.
7: The guidelines don't address body diversity or the fact that bodies come in all sizes, you know, and so they focus just on the body mass index, you know, size of the body and the BMI.
6: That alone does not measure health. For example, the guidelines say teens 13 and older with certain very high BMs BMIs need to be evaluated for weight loss surgery. Amelia worries this will prompt some doctors to go to extreme measures without taking the individual kid into account and with doing the important tests first.
0: How might these guidelines impact people she treats who struggle with eating disorders?
6: She thinks all of the emphasis on BMI and these extreme measures will make larger-bodied kids more self-conscious about weight and, therefore, more prone to eating disorders. Already, isolation, job loss, and other factors during the pandemic led to a real increase in people seeking treatment for eating disorders.
7: We know that one of the strongest risk factors for developing an eating disorder is previous weight loss attempts, right? So we don't know the long-term risks and benefits of bariatric surgery
6: or weight loss medicines, but we have known risk factors associated with disrupting the relationship with food and the body. And Dr. Amelia says weight loss medications could ultimately make the problem worse.
7: All of these medicines, if they are effective, are only effective while the person's taking the medicine. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying that it's okay to put a 12-year-old on these medications in order to to lose weight. But we also know that the minute the kid goes off the medicine, they're going to gain it back.
6: That's not to say Amelia disagrees with everything in the new guidelines. She supports recommendations that encourage doctors to get training and how to talk about weight and understand obesity issues in kids. And she does support lifestyle therapies around mental health and nutrition and exercise.
0: I know you reached out to people who have dealt with some serious weight issues. What did they say about the things like surgery and medication?
6: I spoke with a 19-year-old woman named Zayden Wirtz who lives in hasty Colorado in the southeastern part of the state. She says she became very overweight as a middle schooler, so much so that she and her parents were afraid for her health. So they went to Children's Hospital Colorado to seek treatment.
4: We had, you know, talked about bariatric surgery and um, that was very up in the air as well because I didn't want to go into a surgery where there was risks and implications, especially that young, but I also didn't feel like there was many options either because my health was rapidly declining. I didn't feel like myself and
2: my parents were scared.
6: Zayden says she was glad bariatric surgery was on the table, but also glad she didn't end up doing it. She says they eventually decided to go through the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic at Children's. She underwent intensive counseling. She also got off social media Mm. and she began taking weight loss medication.
0: And I'm very
4: unapologetic about it. I do believe that if you can lose weight on a medication, you should. And that's what my doctor and I have come to the conclusion of, in my
6: case. Zayden says the lifestyle clinic helped her learn that her weight challenges weren't all her own fault and improved her confidence. She says she's at a much healthier weight now and has a better sense of how to stay healthy uh, now that she's older. She's also working on a cookbook of family recipes. She says some are really healthy and some not so much. Um, On the other hand, I spoke with Joanna Nolan, who was treated for an eating disorder as an adult, but she dealt with weight issues from a really young age, even prescribed medication as a young kid. She thinks, like Dr. Amelia earlier, that the guidelines will encourage doctors to propose things like surgery without taking into account each kid.
0: I feel like there's just this stigma among physicians that individuals with larger bodies or who live in larger bodies automatically have specific medical issues or conditions. And, you know, I personally have been on the receiving end of that, um, you know, my entire life that if I, you know, because as a young kid, I was um not thin like the other kids in my class or my peers, that I was going to grow up to have diabetes or automatically you know, be labeled with certain medical conditions um, simply because I was a larger bodied person. So these guidelines are out there. Do you have a sense of how it's affecting how doctors treat childhood obesity?
6: I think it'll obviously take a while to see the effects of this. Children's Hospital Colorado, for one, says it won't change how they treat kids. They'll continue to assess each child, and they'll offer what they see as the best way to help children become healthy adults, whether it's lifestyle counseling, medication, surgery, or taking this wait-and-see approach.
0: Andrea, thanks.
6: You're welcome. CPR's
0: Andrea Dukakis talking about the ongoing debate in the medical community over the best way to support and treat children who are struggling with weight issues. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: Every person has a story, but
0: sometimes those stories are lost, ignored, or drowned out.
1: That's why CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities. On Real Talk, I'm Nathan Heffel.
2: And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth stories from those not often heard from on the news.
1: Real people, real voices, real talk. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30 here on CPR News and KRCC.
0: Colorado's only oil and gas refinery is slowly returning to full capacity. That's after a series of malfunctions led Suncor Energy to pause operations last December. As CPR's Sam Brash reports, local gas prices are back down, but the saga has left nearby residents more frustrated and concerned than ever.
3: It's been more than three months since these problems started, so let's do a quick recap. It all began during that bitter cold snap in late December. We have some very cold conditions coming in. We'll call it a December forecast. That's when Suncor, a Canadian oil and gas company, started sending vague public notifications to residents living near its Commerce City refinery, residents who are usually less affluent and largely Latino. Those notifications said not to worry about smoke and emergency alarms coming from the refinery. Then, on Christmas Eve, the company called in a fire to 911.
7: Now there's a medical emergency. They're requesting an ambulance.
3: Two workers ended up in the hospital with burns. Days later, Suncor announced it had shut down the refinery to repair extensive damage. That sidelined a facility that normally supplies about a third of Colorado's gas and diesel. And gas prices did go up. The average price for a gallon of unleaded regular rose to about $4 in March. Data from AAA Colorado shows it's fallen to about $3.50 over the last few weeks. That's likely due, in part, to Suncor, which says it's nearly returned to full capacity. But environmental and community groups, they aren't ready to move on. So we are standing just north of Suncor's Commerce City refinery. We're looking at all of the potential sources of pollution on the refinery with our camera. This is Andrew Klooster, a field advocate with Earthworks, an environmental nonprofit. Since Suncor announced its shutdown, he's visited a handful of times to film the refinery with an $80,000 optical gas imaging camera. I treat it relatively rough, I'm filming in a lot of rough conditions, so (laughs) it's well-loved, let's just say that much. For that price, the camera shows volatile organic compounds, a category of chemicals that includes many dangerous pollutants like benzene. They appear in the viewfinder as plumes lit in psychedelic colors. Long story short, even in a facility that is shut down, there still is a lot of activity that occurs. Activities like burning off excess gases or startup and shutdown procedures. That's been clear from Klooster's photography and official notices the company sent to state air regulators. Since late December, the facility has reported dozens of events where it emitted more pollution than allowed under its state operating permit. Despite those releases, the company told me neighborhood air monitors haven't measured unsafe pollution levels. Neither has a state air monitor deployed at a nearby park. Suncor also filed a timeline of events leading up to the shutdown. To make sense of it, I called John Chikura.
8: I'm a professor of practice at uh, Colorado School
3: of Mines. Um, I worked associated with refineries for Quite a few years. Jacura says there's a basic reason Suncor would struggle with extreme cold. The facility is made of a lot of pipes, and frozen pipes burst. You hear about all the time in houses. Refineries aren't any different. But that also means the facility should be ready to handle extreme weather. Jakura says the documents don't show if Suncor failed in that respect. They only describe what went wrong, not why. So there isn't really a lot of detail to really figure out whether it was a big problem or not a big problem. Suncor plans to submit a full investigation to the state this summer. For residents living nearby, that lack of clarity months later is unacceptable.
0: It's time to phase out Suncor, y'all. Okay, we cannot continue with business as usual.
3: This is Lucy Molina, a Commerce City resident and environmental activist with 350 Colorado. She organized a meeting last week at a rec center near the refinery. Her hope was to give residents the chance to enjoy some tacos and discuss a future without the facility.
0: This community feels that we have been punished for their errors, right? Our gas prices went up and there were still incidents during that shutdown. So it is uh, very unnerving, I would say.
3: And Molina says closing the refinery isn't as unreasonable as it might sound. Market forces have shuttered similar facilities in other states, and they've found ways to survive.
0: There's so many options there for us that have never been offered or provided or accessible to communities like ours because we're poor and we're not worth
2: it.
3: Molina says she knows closing the refinery wouldn't be easy. But after decades of breathing its pollution, she says her community at least deserves the chance to talk about a plan to make it happen. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: You may read Sam's reporting on Suncore Energy on our website at CPR.org. When we come back, the story of a baseball pitcher who may only be fiction for now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: Suspended above I-70 in Glenwood Canyon, Hanging Lake is one of Colorado's national natural landmarks. It may also be the most stunning body of water in the state. A wide, shallow bowl clinging to the cliffs, fed for eons by a mineral spring. When you gaze into its turquoise clarity, Hanging Lake can change your mood. But first, you have to get there. The way is relatively short, but steep, 1,200 feet of elevation, like stair climbing the Empire State Building. It's also fragile. The lake was spared, but the Grizzly Creek fire in 2020 damaged the trail, followed by flooding and debris flow across the fire's burn scar. Today, the trail is open again with more improvements to come. You cannot bring your dog, fishing gear, or a swimsuit, but do bring good hiking shoes and a hiking permit. You can't start climbing without it. A Colorado Postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health.
0: A traditional rite of spring comes to Denver today, opening day.
5: Here we are, new season. Doors are open, come on in. Something else, there's nothing like it. That one is gone!
3: <laughs> what was that? That was ridiculous. <laughs> Swing and a miss, strike three. What a day to celebrate.
0: This afternoon at Coors Field, it will be the Colorado Rockies' turn to join the fun in their home opener when they face the Washington Nationals. The Rockies aren't expected to be contenders for the playoffs this year, but perhaps things would be different if they had a pitcher who set unimaginable records every time he took the mound, a player who spent his formative years in the Rocky Mountains. That's the premise of a new book by Mark Stevens, The Fireballer. He spoke with my colleague, Anthony Cotton.
8: Welcome to the program. Well, thanks a million for having me. I appreciate it.
5: We heard a montage of some sounds from opening day last week in Major League Baseball. It's a much heralded, much cherished time. I'm wondering what are some of your favorite opening day memories? Uh, Yep, I grew up outside Boston and
8: uh, fell in love with the Red Sox early on as a kid. But I do have a favorite opening day memory, and that has to do with being a reporter on the day that the Rockies debuted in uh, in Denver, Mile High Stadium, the old Mile High Stadium, um, and I was a reporter. On, well, fortunately, assigned to just help gather color outside the stadium, um, so I didn't get inside. My wife and my then very young daughter were inside and got seats on that day. I think there were eighty thousand people inside, but just the atmosphere and the welcoming excitement of Denver you know, seeing Major League Baseball come to the city after, you know, many, many years of campaigning and trying to bring it in. I mean, that was just a crackling, beautiful, exciting day. And to think Denver stepped up to the Major Leagues was just a big thrill.
5: Do you still follow the Rockies or the Red Sox at all?
8: Those are my two teams. I have one American League team and one National League team. Those are my two. I try as much as possible to keep up with what's happening and Yeah, despite the struggles last year with the Red Sox, I still believe, um, as we all do every year that your team is going to, you know, at this time of year, that's what early April is is so wonderful for. We we have all sorts of hope and um, believe that our team is going to overcome all the experts trying to put them down and uh, will somehow rise up and survive the season and maybe show up in the playoffs at the end of the year and Yeah, even though your team might not be uh, even winning as many games as they lose, you still want to follow their progress, and any one game can be a thrill.
5: So, yeah, definitely follow. You've written numerous books and perhaps are more closely identified with mysteries. A few years ago, your novel Trap Line, which was part of a mystery series, won the Colorado Book Award. Why the Pivot to Baseball?
8: Yeah, it's as big a surprise to me as it is to anybody else. I spent a long time in sort of the crime fiction world, developing lots of friendships among crime fiction writers all over the country and across Colorado, and really saw myself as somebody who was that's that was my thing. I enjoyed it, I and I still do. I love that whole genre. The reason I switched um, had to do with a conversation with one of my former uh, bosses. And that happened to be Denver Public Schools Superintendent Irv Moskowitz. We really had three things we talked about. We talked about politics. We talked about books and reading of all kinds. And the third thing we would always talk about is baseball. We were both big baseball fans. And he knew I wrote um, some books. I don't think he really really liked my books necessarily. He didn't really ever say too much about them. That was sort of a Topic we didn't talk about, um, which was fine. That was just that was just him. And uh, one day over lunch in the park, eating a burrito, he said, "You should write a book. You should write a novel about a pitcher who ruins the sport of baseball, who ruins the game." And uh, I, you know, asked him to explain what he meant, and it didn't take long to get the concept. Um, the concept being that right now, at the top speed, pitchers are throwing one hundred five, one hundred six. Um, there is precious little time for a batter to to decide whether to swing, let alone how to swing, and where to swing. All the decision making that goes on in about point three seconds you know, at the top speed today. And he said, if you put a pitcher on the mound in a novel and that pitcher can throw a one ten, that is going to basically um, make a swing impossible to pull off in the time that it takes for the ball to leave the Pitchers mounting and ride in the catcher's mitt, and it was just sort of this existential question about what will the sport do. And we kicked it around for a while, but that night I went home and I wasn't necessarily thinking about it. And I can't—I gotta say—I was daunted by the idea of even writing something outside of crime fiction. But the other half of the book, the emotional half of the book, just kind of hit me like a like a train. I guess just it just occurred to me that what if this same pitcher had throw out a pitch in Little League that it hit and killed a kid. Uh fidelity, of course, but w- you know, what would that character be like? And I can tell you, I just sort of had that galvanizing moment you kind of wait for as a writer, just happened to just drop out of the sky, and I just said, I've got to write that book. Well, Mark, I
5: carefully crafted my questions around the idea of not spoiling. <laughs>
8: it's a fairly well-known aspect of the book, and it early on in the novel, so I don't, It's not a secret that I was trying to hold back from the reader. I wanted to play fair
5: with the reader. I want to say that Ryder's accomplishments are a bit beyond the pale, but I guess your counterpoint, as you point out in the book, is that it may not be long before the things he does in your work of fiction actually starts happening at Coors Field or somewhere else in Major League Baseball. How close do you think we are to getting to that point?
8: Well, it's hard to say. Um, the you know when I was a kid, a hundred was considered untouchable. Th- there are reports that the, the the gear that they use to measure pitcher speed has changed a lot. I, I fully believe Nolan Ryan probably uh, was pitching around a hundred, maybe faster. There's reports that Bob Feller back in the '40s was pitching that fast, a uh, hundred or better. So you know that that notion of pitching a hundred miles an hour was sort of a distant thought Um, when I was a kid, um, which is obviously a long time ago, but now 100 is common. And now 101, 102, very common. You see a lot of that. And it's just continuing to move up and up and up. And there are whole uh, training programs out there, clinics, that pitchers go um, coming out of high school, coming out of college, they'll sign up and go to these Places There's one in uh, the Northwest called drive line where they really just are trying to up the speed of, of the pitcher's um, abilities. And that this is a stated goal of many, many pitching coaches to up the, up the speed. And it's just a matter of getting that combination of uh, the human being, the, all the, you know, muscle and power and, and everything that needs to go into the anatomy of throwing a pitch combined with uh, that, that endurance, that ability to keep doing it over and over. Um, so I think it's a, maybe a five or six, maybe eight or ten year issue, but it's coming. Frank
5: Ryder is doing things, legendary, perhaps physically impossible things, each time he pitches. That brings to mind another larger-than-life persona, Sid Finch. It was at about this time almost 40 years ago when author George Plimpton wrote an article for Sports Illustrated magazine that told the incredible story of Finch, who grew up in England and threw the baseball almost 170 miles an hour. Ultimately, it was revealed that the story was a huge April Fool's joke. I'm wondering if Sid Finch came to mind at all when you were writing The Fireballer.
8: Absolutely. Um, first of all, I, th- I felt hook, line, and thinker for that issue when it came out, and I was just in awe of the story and the reporting. I I just I swallowed it whole like a naive reader. Um, sports Illustrated, one of the best articles ever. Uh, little known trivia: if you if you take the first letter of each paragraph of the opening of that story, it spells out April Fool's Day. Um, and you know, it it just was one of the most brilliant spoofs ever. But yes, I did think about that, and 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 there are I think examples in sports. I mean, even right now, nobody thinks. You should be able to hit and pitch at the same time. We are living in the time of Shohei Otani, who not only is one of the best hitters in the the league, he's one of the best pitchers in the league, and there's nobody even trying to do both, let alone being both the best hitter and the best pitcher. He is completely off the charts when it comes to playing both sides of the game. You just don't see that. There are some comparisons to Babe Ruth that Babe Ruth uh, pitched and hit as well, and that's true, but not at the level that Shohei Ohtani is doing right now. He he would be one of the top five or six pitchers in the league, and he would be one of the top uh, probably 10, maybe even top five batters in the league. That's just unheard of. So these people do come along, um, even in even in other sports like Michaela Schifrin and skiing. Uh, you can just go right down the line. There's There's always... Not always, but there's usually somebody who's just head and shoulders above the rest of the
5: league. It's interesting that you mentioned Michaela Schifrin, who recently set the all-time record for victories in World Cup skiing. Uh, A couple of years ago, she actually went through a slump that was caused by some mental challenges resulting from the death of her father. You know, we, we see it with other athletes as well. The Rockies currently have a pitcher, Daniel Bard, who's on the injured list because he's going through some problems with anxiety. How much research did you do into that aspect of baseball, and how important was it for you to make it a part of the book?
8: Uh, It was very important, and I did as much research on the mental health side of things as I did on the baseball side. Um, Another example, I think, of what you're talking about would be Simone Biles with her situation during the Olympics and just pulling herself out and, Citing mental health challenges as a instigator for her inability to perform that particular day, and sort of outing herself with those mental health issues, and I think it's probably a lot more, you know, pervasive. I don't know if that's the right word. And in in sports, I mean, we expect these people once they're at that level to just be able to perform time after time. And uh, I read several great books. One was by Bob Tewksbury about just the mental side of baseball and how important it is to get your head around and um, be in the right space. And um, I read several books and did lots of online reading about mental health issues. I certainly don't consider myself a mental health expert by any means, but just trying to understand what people go through when they go through a traumatic event and how that might impact their whole way of not only Being, but just how they view the world, how they see themselves in it, um, how they might view their place in the world, just all that really important stuff that probably puts sports, I would think, in a different light when you're dealing with and having come face-to-face with, in this case, even though it was accidental, random death, which is a powerful, powerful thing to go through.
5: I know you're something of a baseball purist, and the game has changed rapidly. Now there's a clock, which speeds up how quickly the pitcher has to deliver the ball to the plate. In your book, there's a pivotal scene in which Frank Ryder is batting against a National League pitcher. That's not the case now, because the designated hitter is used in both the National and American leagues. You address that change in an author's note at the end of the book, but clearly you didn't go back and change your story. I'm curious what happens when real light intrudes on the vision that you have for a book.
8: Yeah, that, that was a tough one um, because uh, my agent sold the book about five months before the National League uh, decided to bring in the, the designated hitter. And we, there was some discussion about some changes. I don't think the discussion lasted very long. We just agreed to go with the fact that this was set in the previous era. Um, it would have taken a fair amount of work, not a whole lot to change that. But then the you know, the, the book uh, was just published in January and we would, we would not have been able to anticipate because it takes a year of editing and a year of preparation to get the book out. All the changes that were instituted by Major League Baseball last summer with the pitch clock and with um, increasing the size of the bases and eliminating defensive shifts, um, you know things like that, we would have been out to date with that as well. Um, and fortunately, I have to say among um, all the readers to date, and you know, I think the fireballer is doing pretty well, and I've heard from lots of readers, nobody is nobody is talking about that. It, it's, um, they, they're willing to accept that this was
5: in a previous uh, iteration of the game. What was the thinking of having Frank Ryder play in Baltimore for the Orioles as opposed to with the Rockies or the Red Sox, which, as you said, was your favorite team growing up?
8: Well, it could have been the Rockies. They were darn close. The fact is, when I was writing the book, the Orioles were the worst team in the major leagues and therefore would have had the number one draft pick. And being an East Coast guy, um, I kind of liked the idea of setting it in a... I knew I didn't want it to be New York or l a or one of the one of the cities that gets lots of coverage and lots of attention. I thought Frank, uh, being a phenom and and matching up with a city that's sort of hunting a radar, a team that's definitely um, at the bottom and needs to go a long way. In other words, one one new player uh, can derive and and motivate a team to to come up through the standings and really make a difference. and I don't know. It's just a match of a character and a city. I don't think I kind of pretend to know Baltimore really, really well. I've been there a number of times. And uh, it I just it just clicked in my fictional brain as a good match. And um, there are a lot of Denver scenes in the book because after what happens to him in this little league game in Atlanta, his parents move him to Denver and he's a Thomas Jefferson High School graduate. He goes on to Metro State. Uh, and then later on in the story when he, um, events bring him back to Denver. So there, are Denver scenes where he visits his girlfriend and has a visit with his mom and goes back to TG and visits with his coach. So uh, if I, if I set it in Colorado, then I would have had to have all the family stuff somewhere else, I think. Um, so it just kind of worked out. And, you know, once you, once you make a decision and you just kind of go with it, it just, the more I wrote, the
5: more it felt like a good, good fit. The names of everyone on Frank Ryder's Baltimore Orioles were made up, but you brought any number of real-life people into the story. There are numerous reporters from ESPN. At one point, you had former President Barack Obama giving a speech in which he sings Writer's praises. I'm wondering what is the process for using actual people in a work of fiction. Like, why wouldn't someone on President Obama's staff reach out and ask what's going on here? Yeah,
8: no, if you've got a, a president, you're allowed to, you know, somebody like Barack Obama, you're allowed to use him fictionally. That's allowable in our world and what we do. And, um, for, say, I mean, one of the rules we kind of came up with was Frank Lighter's teammates would all be fictional. And, um, Anybody in the previous Orioles that they would mention, they could be real people because they're no longer on the team, they're no longer playing, but you could reference their records. In the case of Jim Palmer, one of the most famous Orioles pitchers, he's a broadcaster, and I did decide to use lots of real characters from broadcasting, like Buster Olney from ESPN or Jessica Mendoza. And Jim Palmer, he, to this day, even though he's um, well up there, is a fabulous color commentator. For the Orioles, and um, you can you can use use those people just to sort of, I think, connect your your story to actual players, and that puts it in the context of quote unquote reality. Of course, it's not because it's words on a page in a novel, but it just gives it that flavor of um, of sense of connected connected to what we have all consumed through watching uh, professional sports, reading accounts about. Those games and um, just sort of some of the legends of the game as well, and putting putting Frank in that lineage and in that heritage of that culture of a, of a team.
5: Throughout the book, there's the, the specter of whether baseball will change its rules with regards to Ryder and his astonishing performances. The argument comes to a head when the owners meet during the World Series. Frank Ryder shows up at the meeting and gives his perspective. Would you mind reading that passage for us, please? Sure, I'd
8: be glad to. Writer looks around the room, goes for direct eye contact with at least one owner on each side of the table. The silence is delicious, empowering. You would be asking athletes to not do their best. Can you seriously go out there with a straight face and say, you run a sport, but in this one single case, you're asking someone to only bring their B game, leave the A game at the door? That's what you stand for? Ryder moves around behind his chair, pushes it in, thinks of all the practice time from his bedroom to Thomas Jefferson High School to Metro and with the Orioles, too. All the work, all the analysis. That idea boggles my mind to think you would clamp down on potential, Ryder shrugs. Did you tell Nolan Ryan he couldn't throw another no-hitter? Did you tell Sandy Koufax he could only toss Five devastating curveballs per game. Did you step in then? Why not stop a no-hitter before the ninth inning and say, you know, we really want some balls in play today. Why not? Why not set 15 strikeouts as the maximum number any pitcher can get in one game?
5: What's the difference? I'm wondering what's next for you, Mark.
8: Well, I do have few crime novels sitting with my agent um both finished and ready to go at least in my mind and my agent has been through them and we're we think they're ready to go but i'm also working on a novel set in the world of rock and roll, which is another big passion of mine in my dream world i kind of go back and forth write a quote-unquote regular non-genre non-mystery novel something that was just uh a good character and a good story, and just go back and forth between writing a good mystery and writing something like this. So, But the fact that I wrote this is still a bit mind-boggling to me because I thought I would always be writing kind of fiction.
0: Mark Stevens speaking with CPR senior producer Anthony Cotton. Stevens is the author of The Fireballer, a novel looking at the journey of baseball phenom Frank Ryder, the type of player the Colorado Rockies could probably use about now. The Rockies begin their home season this afternoon against the Washington Nationals. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters home team.
5: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielick, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
6: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel
3: Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Shane Rumsey,
0: Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.